So I'm really excited to be here today, and I really appreciated Daniel Williams' sermon this morning. It's, um, it's a gigantic work that we're called to here. It's not simple, it's not short, it's a long game, it's robust and deep and so forth, and it's hard to almost capture it in a moment. And so to have a, a go-to sermon, if you will, that's going to be on the podcast to uh, point people to, to say, this is kind of a snapshot of what we're after. You know, that's, we, that's why we have tools of grace. That's why we have an emphasis community, emphasis on the scriptures. And we have lots of resources in each one of these categories. That's why we got the overarching um, thesis of rediscovering and restoring biblical Christianity with 15 emphases, you know, of all the different areas that we're attacking. It's not a light project we're about around here. Um, and uh, I, I get into it. Like, I really enjoy it. I love it. I really feel called to be a part of this. And if you're part of this church, you're, you're called to do it too. And so there's a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of relating to each other, and a lot of um, study that goes along with that um, and struggle and stuff. But it's, it's, it's a good labor that we're called to steward, a good work that we're called to. So I'm very excited about it. And thank you, Daniel, for kind of giving a good synopsis of what we, a snapshot of what we do here. Because um, I, part of, you know, the Rediscovering the Story of Biblical Christianity series and normal discipleship for Christians is to grow in your knowledge and understanding of Scripture. So trying to, uh, there are many different ways to read the Bible, right? I mean, you can read it straight through, you can read it topically, you know, uh, you can read it, you can go to the original uh, Greek and Hebrew text and start analyzing word studies, and um, you can also read it um, uh, by author. You can look at the Pauline uh, scriptures and see how Paul handles uh, writes and how he handles the Old Testament. You can also see Christ in the Old Testament. That particular one is kind of what's called um, typology. It's Christ is typified, thank you, um, in all of these different um, images and stuff in the Old Testament. Um, and then there's another way you can read it that's actually a little bit more nuanced because it's not as emphasized in the evangelicalism. There's certain um, groups like, uh, you know, like Presbyterians and stuff. I'm sure there's others, and I'm, forgive me, I think Anglicans can handle this one really well, is allegory. Uh, being able to see the scriptures allegorically as the spiritual symbols or types that are arranged by God's sovereign providence, let's say in the Old Testament, and tell a very clear spiritual story that relates very concretely to the reality of who Christ is and who we are as the church. That's kind of an allegory. Um, it's a story of symbols and figures and forms and, uh, that have concrete meaning, but they have, like the table. The table is actually an allegory. The table is a type. It is out, types and allegory. It tells a story. And some of that is what we'll look at today. Um, so I, I want to kind of throw that out there, that this isn't necessarily something you're all familiar with, but it is a way to study the scriptures. And there have been better teachers and worse teachers on these topics throughout church history. Um, allegory can get you into some murky waters, but right now in the body of Christ, we have some of the best allegorical teachers that I can find historically. And I, maybe I haven't dug deep enough, and I probably could use a couple references in that regard if anybody knows any. Um, but the guys at the Theopolis um, Institute, like Peter Lightheart and James Jordan and stuff, they are masters of it. And it's just such a deep well that I just, I, I love so much. So this is actually kind of a presentation I did a couple months ago, but I didn't have it very well prepared. I kind of scribbled notes on a piece of paper and kind of shot some stuff at you. So I did a little bit more polish and um, preparation on this one, and we'll definitely go deeper um, into a, a sequence of priest-king prophet, and then we'll also see how that um, correlates to the table. And this is largely taken from um, James Jordan's From Bread to Wine book, which is fantastic, and everybody should read it. So, <laughs> um, excuse me. So I wanted to make sure, <clears throat> why is allegory a valid thing? I'd like to point that out before we dive too much further into it. Um, if I didn't put this in the slides because this one kind of came during the first service. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, so if you have your Bibles, you could turn to that, the first four verses, to kind of show um, an example of allegorical interpretation. 
verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. That's a story of spiritual images that happened in real history that are instantly pointing to Christ and the realities of who they were found in Christ as the people of God from the Old Testament. That sort of makes sense. (laughs) That's an example of allegory. It's also, therefore, biblical to look at the scriptures in these ways, and it's also part of the apostolic hermeneutic. The way the apostles interpreted the scriptures, this is one of those ways that it does it. So there's a validity there, right? That's the the proof that we can actually do this, and it's not weird. (laughs) Um, So I ask that you uh, keep an open mind and kind of let your imagination kind of put the pieces together, because the Holy Spirit gives illumination um, to the scriptures, and he shows us things. And I really, um, Lord, I do ask that the Holy Spirit would be here and help us do that today. Um, Because this is fun. So why do we make this distinction of priest, king, and prophets? Where does that even come from? Um, Well, uh, first of all, that's the last point in the first slide, I guess. Uh, It's okay. We look at these things for pattern recognition's sake. Um, It's helpful to to discover and yield to biblical norms and patterns so that we might fully enter into the life of God. When we can start to see the scriptures and the patterns of the mind of God and his ways in dealing with men in history, we can more fully cooperate with them. That's a wonderful thing. The life of God in us is more robust and full at that point, which is why you should study scripture all the time, um, is to learn how to apply it and become part of it and let it be living inside of you. So the priest-king-prophet progression is a type uh, which accords with Christ's life and sets the pattern or type for our growth and maturation. So this is a maturation progression, which I made the point in my last time dealing with this topic that this was a sequence of maturation. When I saw it for the first time, I was just like, this is really cool. Like, I, should have, I, I, I needed to see this. And so it really, it's kept coming up, which is why I revisit this topic. But again, a type is a deep pattern impression into us by the Holy Spirit. We are created in the image of God. The way that Christ is as the um, God-man is the perfect pattern and, uh, of our Christian life. So he is a uh, perfect pattern of our being, our place, and um, our life in general. We have to look to him as the pattern. So Christ embodies all of these offices, the office of priest, the office of king, and the office of prophet. And um, the Westminster Confession actually brings that out um, in one of its, I think it's uh, statement eight, if I'm not mistaken. I, I didn't do the confession. I copied the catechism questions because they give explanation for that. We'll look at that in a second. But um, the passage from priest, king, prophet is natural. It accords with a Trinitarian image bearing in which we are created. And it's also the, it's how the word of God is structured and the gospel is arranged. The canon itself goes in a flow of priest, king, prophet. And we'll start to look at that. It's part of how Israel's history developed. Um, and how they matured as a nation of people of God. And that's a macro concept. That's a historical way of looking at it. And there's also a micro way of looking at it in our individual experience. So we'll try to shape the macro and the micro applications of this and also the Christological pattern as we go. So the um, Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechism, uh, it's a super famous and influential work um, of the Reformation and post, sort of like post-Reformation um, eras. I can't remember the exact hour or the uh, year, excuse me, the years of it, so forgive me about that. Point is, is that it's remained one of the more definitive um, works and or, uh, arrangements of uh, doctrine in the church, especially the Reformed church. It is super influential. It's stuck around and it's still very beneficial to uh, study and work through and memorize, as a catechism should be. Um, so that's one of the places that we find this priest, king, prophet distinction. However, it's arranged in a different way. Um, it's arranged prophet, priest, king. And um, not necessarily supposing, uh, it's not supposing an order. That's not the purpose of its arrangement, but that can also, that's one of those things that we could stand to 
analyze and kind of roll over our heads the order of it, but also the content of the responses within the catechism. The catechism, if you didn't know, is arranged in a question and an answer format, okay? Um, we'll see that again here in a second. But we need to recognize that maturing also means we have to continue to reform. There's a famous Reformation phrase, semper reformata, always reforming. The church is always growing and reforming. And as good as the Westminster Confession and uh, Catechism is, it's very helpful and beneficial to all Christians that it is, it's not the inspired word of God. So it has areas where it could be shored up, maybe reanalyzed and redefined. I don't pretend to be that guy, so I'm, I'm, I'm copying and pasting uh, notes from guys that are more qualified to do that kind of a work. I'm not trying to be critical of it, is what I'm trying to say. I'm simply rolling it around in a way that some of my more trusted teachers do. <laughs> so don't anybody get offended if we're making corrections or, or reanalyzing um, a very influential definitive work. Um, also, one point I would like to make uh, is the idea of liturgics. Um, this is actually one of my topics that I want to continue to study on, um, but liturgy is, and I probably could have defined this more effectively, the way I understand it, and forgive me if this is incomplete, is uh, the sequence and rituals associated with worship, but it also, it, that's the capital L liturgy, right? Is, is, the, is the worship and rituals and worship. But liturgics has a much broader application than just Sunday morning worship. It's actually, it involves the patterns and rituals and lifestyles that accord with image bearing, that accord with God's way of doing things, way of doing life. Um, a good example of a liturgy that you probably all engage in is blessing your meal before you eat. That is a ritual. It is a repetitive activity that has um, uh, originality and freshness every time. You might pray something different every time. You don't necessarily pray the Lord's Prayer every time. But it is a pattern and a ritual that accords with how you engage with food and recognition of the Lord as involved in his provision and blessing of that food. Um, it makes the food holy because you associate and bring as a priest the, the God of the universe to the very benign base plate of food on your table. You make that food holy by praying over it and blessing it in Jesus' name. That's ritual. There is liturgy to it. There is a rhythm and ritual and sequence to it. So your entire life is based on rituals because you're made in the image of God. You wake up in the morning, your alarm goes off, you wake up in the morning, you go brush your teeth, you go uh, make your coffee, you do your hair, and then you go to work and you work a day and then you come back home and you fellowship and thank God for the day with your family at the dinner table. You maybe have a drink and rest and enter into rest and then you go to sleep and you do it all over again. That is a sequence that's repetitive and ritualistic therefore that everyone engages in. It's common to man. Why? Because that's how God did it when he created. That's, you're made in the image of God. You will do liturgy. You will do ritual. You will do repetitions. The way we sequence our weeks are based on the creation of, of all creation, God's creation. Um, in the beginning, Lord created X, Y, Z. In the, uh, there is evening and morning, the first day, evening and morning, the second day, evening and morning. At the end of each day, he analyzes his work and he says, this is good. At the end of the sixth day, it's very good. And on the seventh day, he rests. There is a sequence and a repetition and a process that goes in, defines literally the timing of our weeks. That's God being, that's God's order. And we as created in his image, abide by his order, his sequences, his timings, his rituals. This is my understanding of liturgics in a nutshell. Sorry, maybe I waxed too long on that one, but I wanted to kind of put that out there because it validates seeing that our lives would be progressions, would be orderly, natural progressions that are inherent to the image of God. It's inherent to the way he created us. It's not foreign to us. It's natural, therefore, to have these have these forms and patterns and structures uh, that go along with our lives. So anyway, that might be a little abstract, but hopefully it gives a better foundation for what we'll get into. Uh, da, da, da. So some of the reformed refrains regarding the offices of Christ, let's look at those. The Westminster Larger Catechism, 
Question 42, why was our mediator called Christ? Answer, our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king of his church in the estate both of his humiliation and exaltation. What it's basically saying is Christ is mediator because he's doing it according to the Holy Ghost's leading, and he's functioning as a prophet, priest, and king for us. That's kind of what the, the gist of that question is. So then the next few questions, question 43, is how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet in his revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word in diverse ways of administration, the whole will of God and all things concerning their edification and salvation. Can you imagine there being a hundred plus of these questions and answers that you're memorizing? That's what a catechism is. <laughs> it's, it's, we, just, we don't have the chops to do that as often as we probably should. Um, but I love this. So the, the points to take out of that are Christ's office of prophet, um, according to the catechism, is revealing the word of God. Okay, We can take that as the main point. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of his people and in making continual intercession for them. Sacrifice and intercession are the key points of how he executes the office of priest, according to the catechism. Question 45, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executed the office of a king in calling out of the world, a people to himself, and giving them officers, laws, and censures, by which he visibly governs them, and bestowing saving grace upon his elect, uh, sorry, uh, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their, own, and their good. And also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. It's a bold statement, right? It's beautiful. Good stuff. Powerful ruling and governance probably are the key takeaways there and all the different nuances of that. So how could we understand the catechism a little bit better? I, I, I hate to use the word corrected. I didn't have a better word. Um, how could we kind of ref wrestle with it. Because if we're talking about Christ as priest, king, and prophet, there should be a distinguishing aspect between each of those offices. We should be able to distinguish between those three and how Christ uniquely distinguishes them. So according to the material that I've been studying, they have a little bit too much overlap in the catechism. There's not as much distinction there, and that's what we're kind of looking at as we go through this. So Christ as prophet, revealing the will of God, it's not exactly unique to prophets. Priests reveal the will of God. Malachi 2.7, the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and they should seek the teaching from his mouth for he is the messenger of Yahweh of armies. Right? So that's not a unique prophetic function, right? Um, there are unique ones for the record, but therefore that kind of, there's too much overlap there. So priests reveal the word of God, the will of God, just like prophets do. Kings also reveal the wisdom of God. Think Solomon's wisdom literature, which is the word of God. Um, Kings have a function in uh, not only obeying the will of God, but also uh, revealing it in their own unique way. So Christ's office as prophet must do something more unique than the other offices, lest we lack a distinction of office. The catechism simply doesn't go far enough. More on the correct distinction later. So we could go farther than that um, in our thinking. Christ is priest. According to the catechism, it deals with intercession and sacrifice. And it is true that the priest functions as a sacrifice on behalf of the people. However, kings are also called to die for the people, since the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Christ fulfills this, of course. And greater love hath no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friend. So kings have an obedience to both of those commandments and being great in the kingdom of heaven, a king. You'd have to be a servant and being willing to Christ-like lay your life down for the sake of the people. So there's not a distinction between priest and king in that regard. Prophets are also intercessors and far more primarily called to be this, as we will see. So Solomon is king, even, uh, made intercession for the people as king in uh, 1 Kings 8 at the founding of the temple. He made an intercessory uh, prayer at the, at the founding of the temple 
And he was very much praying a blessing and asking God to act on the behalf of the people in these ways. That's a function, that's an intercessory prayer. That's a function of being in the middle between God and the people, intercession. Genesis 27, Abraham is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. He's making intercession for, I believe it's Abimelech, um, who had uh, taken Sarai. And um, in order to, for Abimelech to repent before God, he had to humble himself before Abraham, who is a prophet, who will therefore make intercession for you. <laughs> so intercession is not unique, therefore, to a priest's duty. Kings and prophets can both engage in that, as well as a sacrifice. So all that being said, um, yeah, I went to the wrong slide, sorry. Christ is king. Okay, so we'll look at kings, ruling and reigning. Um, but he must die as well. Jesus does indeed reign in power, so his office is indeed a king, and he is indeed all the others as well, like the catechism suggests. But Christ was crowned king with thorns and given a royal robe, and then he was executed with a sign over his head that read the king of the Jews. Jesus did not die only as priest, but also as king. As the greater Melchizedek, he was and is both priest and king forever and lays his life down for his people. Since the catechism leaves this out, it leaves the distinctive nature of the offices of Christ blurred. A correction is needed to clearly identify each office in its unique character, to see Christ more clearly, but also that we could apply it to ourselves and know how we are to grow into those offices of Christ, as under officers, if you will. <laughs> as Christians, imagine that. So, distinguishing the offices. Perhaps a more helpful way of distinguishing the unique character of these offices of Christ would be as follows, and in this order. Priest would be distinguished as a palace servant. Neither of the other two function in that regard. Um, this, is a simple, this is the simplest of offices. It's the, the duties thereof are very basic, um, all, although they're pretty labor-intensive. Um, but essentially, a priest is called to judge according to right and wrong, black and white, clean and unclean, according to the law, right? It's a very simple identification. Their duties are spelled out. When the cloud moves, you tear down the tabernacle in just this way. When the cloud lands, that's when you set it up. And this particular group is going to carry this bit. This particular group is going to carry this bit. This particular group is going to do that. This is how you do sacrifices. You're going to uh, take the animal, take the lobe of the liver, and separate this part and that part. And then you're going to spray the blood over here and there and so forth. And then you're going to burn this in fire. Then you're going to put underneath the sacrifice... Uh, 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 bread or grain or whatever it is, and so on and so forth. The details are spelled out to the nth degree for priests. That's a huge distinction of the office of priest, is that they have a very basic, uh, almost the way you would communicate to a child, right? Samuel, go get me a pair of socks from the top drawer of my dresser. It's on the left side underneath the t-shirts. <laughs> you know, that's the top drawer, right? So, um, and bring it back as fast as you can. There's very specific instructions on how to go about telling a child how to do his duty. Priests receive that, um, that uh, specificity in the uh, dispensation of their duties. So I did put a note here to read Hebrews 3, 1 through 5. So we'll go ahead and look there. I honestly can't remember why, but we'll just do it. <laughs> Should have made more notes. <laughs> That's right. Let's follow the letter and do it, and that's, that'll do it. <laughs> Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for the testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. A priest is a palace servant. Well, actually, but Christ, verse 6, I should have gone to 6. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Christ is a faithful priest in the house of God. And Moses was as well. So the priests are called to faithful servants, service. Now, waxing allegorical, um, Israel's history, specifically from Moses to Samuel, was a priestly 
period, where Israel was ordered and arranged as the higher portions of their government arranged around the temple, the priesthood reigned from that period. If you'll remember, um, Samuel anointed the very first king of Israel, right, Saul. So that begins the kingly phase of um, Israel's history. Saul, all the way up to the end of the kingdom when Babylon finally uh, squashed Jerusalem, um, that was the kingdom, the kingly period of Israel's history. And uh, so thinking about the kings, well, let's actually tell you that um, Israel's history as prophets would be Elijah all the way to Jesus, for the record. So Elijah was um, not necessarily the first prophet in Israel, but he began the prophetic order. He began the prophetic phase of Israel's history. And some of the distinguishing characteristics of that involve going into the nations. From that point on is when they started to really, the word of God and the will of God began to influence the nations, specifically um, Syria, uh, which is north of Israel. Uh, Elijah and Elisha had direct interaction um, and sojourning in Syria, where they were um, uh, the widow's oil and then the the children they brought back from the dead and then anointing Ben-Hadad or whatever his name was, maybe Hazalel, maybe... um, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on that one right now. But they anointed a king over Syria, right? Up until that point, anointing oil was given to the kings of Israel from God. But at that point, the, the prophets of God are actually anointing the nation's kings. So that's a distinction and a maturation and a change in the function and scope of influence within the people of Israel. So Elijah begins that prophetic ministry and it completes in Christ. We'll go into each one of these in more detail here. This is just cursory glance. Um, a king is a more uh, complicated office, okay? A king is required to function in wisdom and timing and must be able to judge between the lesser of two evils, be able to make the hard calls. Not every detail of a king's duties and dispensation of his office are spelled out in the law in contrast to the priest. The king has to sit there and kind of go with, he has to be an expert in the law. And the priestly aspects of obedience to the law have to be requisite, a prerequisite for the kingly maturity, right? And just as much as kingly maturity always builds on law, so prophetic also builds on the king's, the kingly dispensation of his duties. These are, the maturation does not negate the previous stage. It builds upon it, okay? That's a good point to help everybody keep track. But the king, therefore, has to function in wisdom and timing. Think of um, Solomon. Um, he was a youth, and he prayed to God for wisdom. Because uh, he's like, how do I govern this p- great people? And I need wisdom to do so. And one of the, most, or one of the quickest ways that that was um, shown forth to the people, of how great his wisdom was, was two prostitutes came to him. And they had um, a living child and a dead child. And he had to decide who was making, because both of them were making claim over the living child, saying that the other one rolled over and killed the other, or killed the other child. He had to make that call. There is no, there's no pause. Let me go see what Moses had to say about this particular case law. There was no, there was no uh, looking at the case laws of Moses to be able to discern that. That had to come from wisdom. That had to come from understanding of the law and the mind and the heart of God through study of the law and applying it. So the application of the law in wisdom and good timing is very, very much kingly, um, is a kingly uh, aspect. That's the distinction within the king's office. Prophetic uh, was the most complex or mature, and he becomes a member of God's privy council. Um, Again, we'll look at these individually, so I don't want to go too deep into them just yet. But mediation and instruction of the people carrying prayer petitions to the council of God. Literally, the triune council of God hashing it out with his prophets. And uh, Amos 3.7, is it 3.7? Yeah, 3.5 or 3.7, whatever. Um, The sovereign Lord does nothing without... uh, Actually, I'm going to misquote it, so let's just go ahead and do it right. John Luke probably hasn't memorized Would that we all had the scriptures memorized like John Luke. Uh, Amos 3.7. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. It's a super powerful thought, but God does that. He literally will disclose what he's doing in time to his, to his prophets before he even does it. That's an insane thought. 
But that's why it's a more mature relationship to God in the office of a prophet. Um, and why it, therefore, is far more complex and, uh, than the others. So, moving on. Let's keep rolling here. Priest is a palace servant. I've already hit some of these, so I'll try to skip them. But it helps to understand the role of a priest when you consider that the tabernacle and the temple were God's house but his royal house that had worship going on in it, okay? Versus thinking of it as a, like we have church today as just a worship center. Not many people live here, right? <laughs> um, but in the house of God, that's where he abides. That's where he rests, you know, goes, he stays. He doesn't sleep. <laughs> he doesn't sleep or eat. Um, but that's where he stays. That's where he lives, okay? And if we're in God's house and servants of God's house, and it's a royal house because he is king, um, the housekeeper of God's palace becomes a far more apt description, almost, title of a priest, a descriptive title. Um, the Old Testament, of course, tabernacle and temple. The New Testament is the church. If we are priests in God's house, we as the body of Christ are the church. And we have duties to um, host his presence and, let it, and abide with him, therefore. But we also have duties of how to wash and serve and administer the word and the sacraments and grace to one another. We have duties that are described and prescribed throughout um, the whole corpus of scripture. But anyway, we function as priests in this way. Christ also functions as priest of God's house. When he was in, um, uh, he was 12 years old. Um, did you not know that I would be about my father's business? Where was he at? In the temple. His father abides in the temple and he recognizes his association and his duty to um, the temple and the house of God. When he drives um, the money changers and so forth out, he says, my, uh, my father's house um, is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. So his father's house, he's identifying himself as a priest and a son um, being faithful in all his father's house, just to kind of show how Christ does embody these things very clearly in many other ways. Um, the tabernacle and temple, therefore, are the earthly uh, uh, copy of the heavenly pattern, the heavenly palace or the house of God on earth. That is what we are as the church as well. Explicit detail, servants of the house, their, duty, their duties pertain to its upkeep and the readying of the people for entrance, worship, and fellowship. They have to keep the people clean. <laughs> uh, they have to make sure the sacrifices, which we are living sacrifices, so we're part of that sacrificial dynamic. Um, we are living sacrifices, making sure they're pure and blameless and holy to God. The priests have these duties. And it's also very important to notice that the duties of the Old Testament priests, when categorized or identified like this, carry over almost seamlessly to the New Testament pattern of pastors and teachers and ministers of the gospel. They ready the people in organizing and discipling them, overseeing religious meals, the sacraments, as part of worship. It's almost identical to Old Testament to New Testament. There's not as much that changes. You just don't sacrifice as many bulls. <laughs> you know, bulls and sheep. That's, that's some of the things that have passed away, but so much of the purpose of why the sacrifices were necessary in the Old Testament uh, to cleanse and purify the people because there was not the perfect Lamb of God sacrifice in force yet. That had, not already that had not occurred yet. So they needed annual sacrifices and many sacrifices in the morning and in the evening and all the time reminding them of their sin. Well, the priests now today, we have the perfect sacrifice, the blood of Christ and the word of God that washes us clean and so forth. We have that um, we have that same duty, though, to apply it to each and every member, to ready the people, ensure that they're clean, ensure that they're receiving and walking in grace, ensure that they're um, fellowshipping and abiding in the house and the presence of God on a regular basis and growing into the things of the Lord. That's very much what a priest did in the Old Testament, as is in the New. So it's really straightforward work, but it's also labor-intensive, okay? So it's not super complicated. It's pretty straightforward, but it's labor-intensive. King is wise ruler. This is the, uh, the king also must be an expert in the law as the priest is. However, a priest has his job spelled out for him while a king must function without every detail spelled out. He has boundaries and prohibitions. Don't multiply horses, don't multiply gold, don't multiply wives, <laughs> don't gather many wives. Um, all of those things are prohibitions that the king, boundaries, if you will, for the king's function, right? 
but it's not, but he's at liberty almost in all the other areas to govern and rule as um, he has his heart directs him before God, <laughs> which is also why his, a lot of the kings didn't end up so well, because <laughs> the heart's desperately wicked and stuff. Um, wisdom builds on the law. It requires a foundation in the law, but it also builds upon it. It's the application. The wise application of the law um, is wisdom. That's the why the time of the kings is distinguished with the writing of the wisdom literature. So if we see the history of Israel and the canon from um, the Pentateuch uh, to about Samuel or so, um, as the priestly uh, ordination, and that was the phase of Israel's life, and then we see from Samuel uh, the history of the kings, but immediately after is what? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. The wisdom literature. That becomes... um, uh, uh, written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that is written in that kingly period of time, in that kingly phase of Israel's life. So they are directly associated with one another. That's why we can make that association. And then, of course, you got the commander of an army making hard calls. This is a good example. Um, commander has two parties and one enemy, and if they go up the hill with the whole group, they all die. If they go around the hill, uh, and flank the enemy, and some march and approach the front line, some will die, but then the rest will achieve victory. So by making that call, making any strategy, you're going to probably lose life. <laughs> you're probably going to suffer a modicum of defeat, but it will be a true victory at the, end of the, at the end of the way. So a general or a king have to operate with wisdom. They can't, they know that the law of God says thou shalt not murder, but yet I'm going to command these guys to go up to their deaths. There's a, there's a nuance there and an application of the law of God that requires wisdom. So these are kingly ways of doing things. This is a teaser point. Um, bread is for priests and children, but wine is for kings and prophets and adults. We will get into that later, but that's a teaser point. So prophet as council member. So this one is the one that's so interesting because uh, I just don't think it's thought of in these ways very often. So it, it really ministered to me to kind of arrange it this way, uh, to see it arranged. Amos 3.7, as we already read, Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Examples of that are Amos 7, uh, 1 through 6, where Amos actually uh, pleads with God. Um, God says, I'm going to destroy, uh, I'm going to destroy so-and-so or whatever. And he says, please no God, don't do that. And God's like, all right, I won't. Does it like three times. <laughs> and uh, that's, Amos being involved in the activity of God in time, determining judgments and actions of God in time, Amos had a say in the matter. We see that again, of course, very famously, uh, Genesis 20, verse 7, when uh, God instructs Abimelech to pray for, or Abraham to pray for Abimelech, and Abimelech to go to Abraham, maybe that's more accurate, um, because he is a prophet. Um, he has an intercessory role there, but 18, chapter, Genesis 18 Abraham's discussion with God over Sodom and Gomorrah. God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's like, well, if you found 50 righteous people, well, if you found 30 righteous people, well, if you found 10 righteous people, you know, so on and so forth. He talks God down, so to speak, on what God's intention was. He He had an actual say in the decision process. Now, of course, if you read the language, he's like, God, don't kill me. I'm going to Talk again. <laughs> Don't kill me, God. I have one more thought. If you're really God, maybe you should be more merciful in this situation. And please don't kill me, but what if there's 10? <laughs> That's kind of how I imagine that conversation going. <laughs> um, but uh, that's still Abraham having an involvement and a say. And God actually hearkened unto Abraham's thoughts and prayers and intercession. That is a prophetic function. Um, so just the, the sheer amazingness of that is that God will consult with his counselors before he acts in time. That's just so incredible. Um, and it's not because he's dependent on the input by any means. We're not saying that. We're not saying that God, you know, needs our input <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But what he does is he's actually involving us out of love and grace that we would, as image bearers, have a stake, skin in the game, if you will, involvement in the events, in the governance, and in the redemption of creation. We have a stake and a place in the process and in the history and how God functions in the earth. He wants us to have that place with him. He invites us to maturity. He calls us to maturity. That's, um, 
That is really encouraging knowledge of God, to see God do those things. I, I take heart in that because he wants us to grow. He wants us to get involved. But not until the right timing. And all these things are based on timing and processes and sovereign, uh, sovereign uh, uh, providence and so forth. Um, but the prophet is the mature image of God, now woven into God's fellowship as a junior partner in his council. After years of applying God's word with wisdom as kings, we enter our eldership in the third phase of life as prophets. So Israel's history, Elijah all the way to Christ, was their final uh, stage as a nation, um, as the ethnic um, national Israel that God founded and birthed at Sinai and betrothed at Sinai. Um, that was the end of their time. But these, these time periods overlap, right? There's still a priestly order all the while there's a kings, and then the kings eventually uh, end, but there was prophets before then, and that carries it on. The new stage does overlap the previous because there's culminations, and initi- culminations of previous stages and initiations of the new stages and the new phases of history and maturation. We'll see more of that here in a minute too. And for the record, you guys are stuck in the pews. I'm sorry, because I got permission from Anvesh to keep going. <laughs> so hang tight. We're, we're, we're making progress. Um, there are similarities within the offices, and I guess that might be the thing that you can observe clearly in the catechism, was um, how many overlaps, even though they're defined separately, and you can see them in the, some of their unique character, there's so many overlaps and similarities in the offices. But one I'd like to highlight um, is judgment. Priests have to judge. And they judge according to the rules of the law. Kings have to judge according to wisdom in the wider sphere of national life. And prophets have to judge nations and cultures and therefore oversee the ending of one period, time period and the initiation of the next. That the prophet is the most mature phase of life makes it easy to see why they oversee the culmination and initiation of times and nations in partnership with God. That's a pretty big deal um, to be involved in that kind of intercessory um, function. I'm more mature... Christian would be needed, a more mature office, if you will. So applying these patterns, we've kind of analyzed a lot of examples in the Old Testament of how these um, uh, offices were dispensed by men. Seeing Christ in these offices is obviously super important. And you, what we're about to do here is um, apply that pattern and look at different examples, uh, macro and micro examples of how that pattern is applied and how that func- that flow, therefore, uh, occurs. This is um, Christ's life can actually be broken down like this. I didn't do a thousand examples. You can really do a thousand examples of this. Christ's life can be exemplified in this, but really seeing Christ fulfill all of these offices and hold them in union, um, they're not to be necessarily separated uh, because he is... King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the high priest of our confession. He is the the prophetic word of God, literally incarnate, revealing the full counsel of God, the visible image of the invisible God, okay? Uh, Christ is all of these things, intention at all times. It's not something you can really take apart from Christ. So in time, when with people, you can see the progression and the maturation far more distinctly. So we'll go into all of that. I'm not trying to downplay a Christological application, but I want to see, I want us to see how this plays out in a lot of other things. So starting off, all of creation, God sets up this phase of history as prophet and overseer, if you will. The one whose word speaks and it's creative. It's a creative word speaking. Adam was set up as the priestly um, uh, overseer. His son Cain uh, developed cities and nations, and that is a kingly function, albeit a very sinful and um, ungodly way. Uh, the sons of God, though, uh, mingled with the daughters of men, right? The sons of God were the covenant-keeping Yahweh, um, uh, Yahwehists, if you will, the, the uh, Adamic line. That the Seth line, excuse me, the Seth line um, was the sons of God. Noah came out of that, and uh, they, of course, Noah was a descendant of Seth. That's not too hard, right? Okay. But Noah is prophesying, therefore, as the prophetic voice um, within the sons of God, and he prophesies before the flood and then oversees the initiation or the culmination, excuse me, of that phase of creation where God literally wipes it clean almost and restarts in a new creation. So that phase of history ends and then a new one begins. The old creation and the new creation that had been um, perverted and, and uh, uh, 
uh, had been perverted and desecrated, if you will, and then the new one that is wiped clean and washed clean. Noah, as the prophetic voice and um, uh, uh, man of God of that day, prophesies and oversees that transition into the next phase or the new creation. Post-flood world, Noah, of course, is inaugurating it. Abraham becomes the priestly um, overseer of this. He also functions as prophet, so you know you got to take allegory and, and type in the way that these overlap. But in the sequence of the history versus biography of Abraham, um, that, that is the distinction. Micro, macro, micro. History, biography. The story of an individual, the story of nations and times and seasons. Okay, As long as that's clear, I'm using that language. I want to make sure everyone understands that. So this is a macro um, history. Abraham's priestly. Jacob is kingly, therefore. He's the beginning of the nation. Israel is named. His name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons that become the nation. Um, before that, Abraham had one son. <laughs> well, he had two, but whatever. Um, he actually had more than that, but whatever. Uh, Isaac. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> more kids than that, my bad. Um, he had Isaac. <laughs> And uh, then Isaac did not do well in life. And then Jacob uh, does, does well and ends up becoming the beginning and the fountainhead of that nation. Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, uh, enters that prophetic stage of the season of the people of God. Because the people of God are identified in the earth, not just by being the line of Seth, but now Abraham has a fresh covenant with God. And he has to priestly uh, steward that. And his line begins to mature, therefore, in a very specific way. The people of God grow into kingly and prophetic stages. Um, of course, Joseph <clears throat> goes out into the nations and brings Israel to Egypt, but also in the process saves the world, <laughs> quite literally, um, saves the world and the people of God and the promises of God. These are the prophetic functions, God's word in living action, real time, influencing um, international and global uh, um, activities and timings of God and activities of God. So all the way that Israel is in Egypt, from Joseph bringing them there all the way to Moses, he is the prophet that oversees the ending of that phase of Israel's life of being a part of Egypt and oversees it to the next say, uh, stage. He's the prophetic uh, culmination and initiation of the next stage of history where Israel leaves Egypt. Israel as a nation. <clears throat> they left Egypt. Moses oversees that, but he also therefore helps the priestly order get going. He receives the word of God, the Ten Commandments um, from uh, God on Mount Sinai. He teaches and he judges and he helps that priestly order truly come to terms. He stays with them for an entire generation while 40 years of people die off. So the next, so the next generation can enter in because they grumbled against God and they uh, didn't believe God actually uh, and trust him to take him into the land. That goes on all the way up until Joshua going into the land until Samuel, who is a, um, another prophet who helps make the transition into the kings. Saul and Saul all the way to the end of the kingdom. These are prophetic bookends of these periods, but they also help establish the priesthood. They help establish the kings. They help establish um, the going into the nations. The prophets oversee a lot of these activities and um, new expressions, if you will, of the life of God in the people of God. They oversee and they help this stuff go on. But the progression still happens. Priests, kings, to prophets within the people. So, again, all the way to Jesus. You get Jesus as the final prophet of the old creation, ushering in the new creation. It's the culmination of the first half of history unto the second. So these are a couple good examples and... That's how history and this Old Testament can be arranged and engaged with and appreciated um, in this particular uh, um, sequence, this particular pattern, this type. So applying the pattern to an individual, we'll go through this a little bit faster because I think we're starting to get a hold of it, I hope. <laughs> Definitely been repetitive enough. An individual prophet can go through um, stages. So a single lifetime versus nations in history. Daniel 2, talking about the prophet Daniel, has a youthful prophet able to advise the king and to prophesy the future. Also, um, is the, he was part of the group that was exiled, so he was truly carted over in a new phase of history. 
and he's the overseeing prophet at the time, and he engages the nation, the national king, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, very directly and prophesies over his dreams and explains them to him. Daniel 3, so that prophet, that prophetic voice in the new um, phase of history is present. So we should see priests be established next. We do. Daniel's friends, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which, of course, I'm never going to remember their um, their Hebrew names, because I grew up in Sunday school. <laughs> we always said their Babylonian names. <laughs> so, oh, well. Um, Daniel's friends, they are true priests. They reject false worship, and they remain faithful to God in the midst of a pagan nation. Um, they engage Nebuchadnezzar as king, but Nebuchadnezzar as king ultimately becomes a worshiper of Yahweh, quite literally, after being turned into an animal for <laughs> seven years, or given the mind of a beast, shall we say. Um, he was humbled enough to be able to actually recognize the one true living God. That's incredible. But there is now in the nations a king that recognizes um, the living God. This is a more mature state of the people of God being salt and light in a foreign land. Okay, this, that, that, that leaven is working through and making more and more mature um, uh, uh, products. Daniel, of course, towards the end is the age prophet, revealing the end of the old Babylonian age and the beginning of the new Persian age. He also happens to be the one that um, uh, describes Nebuchadnezzar's dream that literally lays down all of the, the, the powers and the empires that will go all the way up until Christ. He also lays all of that out. So he very much functions as the one who's giving the word of God and revealing the word of God as a prophet um, but also for the times and seasons and powers of nations to come for hundreds of years after him, okay? That's kind of how this pattern flows. We can see this. Older prophetic initiator, priestly service, kingly rule, prophetic member of God's council involved in the ages and stages of nations. That's good stuff. I just love this. So um, let me pause here really quick before we make the full transition. Is this sort of making sense? Okay, I, you can nod your head or shake your head. That's okay. <laughs> I don't mind. Um, this is not the way we normally engage with the scriptures um, in the West. This is not the uh, black and white modern way of reading literal sequences and linear functions of thought and logic, right? This is allegory. This is... Um, this is spiritual themes being applied and observed in history, in concrete historical events, but also, as we're about to look, in concrete material, um, uh, uh, in concrete material um, images, but symbols, okay? Sim symbols, that's the right word. There is so much significance at the table, just so you know. <laughs> I didn't understand that at all as I grew up in the church. Victor Weiss in his sermon, or his um, communion meditations, I don't know what book he was reading from, I really need a copy of it. <laughs> but he would sit there and just read these communion meditations. I was blown away by week after week how there was a fresh understanding, a new understanding and a new dimension of the table and the elements of what God really calls us to in the sacrament. What God really calls us to when we fellowship with him and one another in the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. And the wisdom of God, his perfect, insanely incomprehensible wisdom, was pleased to establish the elements of the table the way they are. As, as very much a statute and a sacrament for us to continue in. Every Christian tradition has emphasized and understood that there is a gigantic importance about this. Some have got little opinions and differences and stuff about how to go about it and stuff like that, nuances, right? But no matter what, that's been a staple of the entire church as a uh, reordering of Passover, right? But as a covenant renewal of the new creation covenant, the, co the new covenant. So when we engage with the table, it is not a stuffy ritual. If it is, you're just, you're missing it. <laughs> you're missing it hard. This is, this is something of so much important significance. And it's not, it's part of the liturgical life of the church, the body of Christ, and how we are united. We are, we are literally, the old is ripped away and the new is entered into, both individually and corporately with God and man in covenant renewal. Here's some really cool stuff. So let's kind of analyze the elements. We will apply the priest-prophet um, 
or priest-king-prophet uh, uh, sequence. We will start to see that in the table, but let's analyze the bread and the wine um, and how the maturation from bread to wine actually is a pattern of maturation as well. And we can see that both patterns can very well be overlaid. That's what we hope to get to. We'll see. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going long. When we begin to see the pattern and flow of maturation in history and scripture, we can begin to apply it to ourselves and find our hearts in greater union with the ways of God. Now, let's look and consider the table and the Lord's Supper and how it reveals this course of life to us. Bread comes first, wine later. You eat the bread before you drink the cup, okay? Sequence. Bread is the alpha food, the beginning. The wine, the omega food, the end. Alpha and the omega, first to last, beginning and the end. Bread is eaten in the morning, and wine is for night. Bread is suitable for children, but wine is for adults. Bread is made quickly, while wine takes much longer to ferment and mature. These are distinctions within the actual elements themselves. Okay, So how does that inform our understanding of the covenant renewal and the new creation? <clears throat> Allegorically, the old creation is the time of bread, and the new covenant, our maturity in Christ, is the time of bread and wine. Between the two comes the breaking of the bread, the death of Christ. The old creation is a time, and I'm sorry, I do this and that. That probably doesn't look right on the timeline to you guys. <laughs> it's thinking right and left, sorry. Just notice that. <laughs> um, anyway, one hand to the other hand. Let's just go there. Between the two comes breaking the bread. The old creation is a time during which the loaf of humanity is formed. And then it's broken to make way for the new in Christ. Think in terms of ingredients going into um, your bread. You've got to formulate the flour, the water, the oil, um, certain seasonings and so forth. You've got to knead them together, get the yeast involved, and then um, salt and fire are added to truly bring it over, uh, to truly bring it to its completion. The old creation is a time of formation that leads to a pregnant purpose, the bread to be broken and to release that into the new creation. So anyway, that's the allegory. The veil was torn in the temple as Jesus died. And we see the breaking of the bread bringing us into direct contact with God. It's ripping in half from top to bottom signifies the first half of the curse of the covenant, which is to be ripped in half Genesis 15, and the bread is ripped. We see Christ taking on the curse of the covenant for us. I will unpack that. Sorry, that's very convoluted. When Christ says, this is my body broken for you, okay, he breaks the bread and shares it with us. We know that Christ's body didn't, no bone was broken, right? God didn't let him see the decay and his bones were not broken, right? What did rip in half at the time, at Christ's death? The veil. The veil ripped from top to bottom in half, okay? So now we are noticing that the high priest of our covenant, the king of our covenant, um, releases the barriers of God, rips the barriers of God and man, literally tears them. The breaking of the bread releases God into our lives. The breaking of his body, the bread of God, or the bread of the sacrament, releases God into our lives. That might be a stretch, but that's very much what was going on. <laughs> so, sorry if that's a stretch. The idea of the ripping, why is that significant? Okay, uh, it's significant on a number of levels. One in particular is Genesis 15. If you're familiar with Genesis 15, I'll blaze through it real fast. This is when God makes covenant with Abraham. Okay? Um, what does Abraham do? He arranges a series of animals and birds and rips them in half. Right? And creates a path through the middle. Okay? What is this? This is what's called a suzerain covenant. <laughs> a suzerain covenant is a... Uh, Basically, a conqueror comes and conquers a lesser group of people or just comes and talks to them and says, hey, I will be your Lord and you will be my servant and it will be better for you because I'll give you protection and stuff. There's some benefits to this, but you're going to covenant with me. And if you want these benefits and I don't kill you right now, you'll take these benefits. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of one of those arrangements. You'll pass through uh, this, the, the center of these animals. Okay? What you're saying as you pass through the center of the animals is that you are going to take on the same fate as these animals and being ripped into a curse um, if you fail to be faithful to this covenant. So the initiator and overseer of the covenant has the, the subject pass through the center of the um, 
uh, of the curse, that takes on the curse and passes through the center of the animals. What's unique about Genesis 15 <laughs> is God is initiating and overseeing this covenant, but he's the one that passes through the middle. He's the one that will take on the curse. Abraham is the recipient of it, but even when Abraham's fealty or the people of God's fealty is lacking or fallen, God will take that curse on. He is faithful when we are faithless, and he's the one who makes and keeps covenant. Even when we can't keep it, he will keep it for us, and he will take the curse and the, 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 the ripping. He will take the breaking. He will take the ripping in two. That's what we see with Genesis 15, but that's the curse that Christ takes on for us when he says, this is my body broken for you. I am taking on your curse, and in so doing, when there was a separation because of sin between you and God, I will rip it from top to bottom. I will, make, I will bring God to you and take your curse and open God up to you. That's incredible, <laughs> powerful imagery, but that's what we see in the bread. It's Christ's body broken for us. Oh, thank you, God. Immediately after, his, after he died, the centurion pierced his side so that blood and water flowed out. John 19. The blood and water is signified by the wine of the supper, which is given to us after the bread is broken. The breaking of the bread releases the wine. The body is broken and the blood is released. The bread is broken and the wine is released. Wine speaks of kingship and maturity, whereas bread is a more immature symbol. Uh, wine is the mature symbol. It speaks of kingship and maturity, but in that wine is also the blood of suffering and death. His blood enables us to be suffering kings. We get to participate with him. For he who would be great in the kingdom must be least of all. The kingdom is rooted in humility and love in which we lay down our own lives in Christ-like fashion. And this will continue until the end. As we weekly renew the covenant, the blood of Christ is released unto us and we imbibe. We participate in his sufferings in life. And because uh, if, you've suffered with, uh, if you've suffered for Christ, you conquer. You're more than conquerors, right? We, uh, conquering is an image of kingship, mind you. Um, we are more than conquerors in Christ if we uh, suffer for his namesake. We participate in that. And in the suffering and death, we become kingly. We become more mature. We become um, more like him as we come to the table and participate in the ritual and understand the sequence and the rhythm and the pattern of God's grace to us and understand his mind and his heart towards us and how he invites us to participate and engage, how he invites us to mature. This is all inherent within the elements. Course of, the course of history itself, so that might be a micro example of Christ to us. We'll think of how the bread and the wine actually um, has the course of history, and we are almost done, so I apologize. This is like my last two, three slides. The course of history is encapsulated in the supper, as is the course of our lives. In the beginning of our lives, God's, God adds things into us, making us into a loaf. We learn from our parents, we learn from our teachers and supervisors, we acquire a wife and children, and the bread of our humanity is formed. There is always some sort of crisis in the midst of life, midlife crisis, if you will, breaking of the bread that releases the wine. This has also been called the dark night of the soul. It's a real form of death and an experience of separation from God. There's books written on the dark night of the soul. If you've ever gone through a really suffering trial season, it's God breaking your humanity <laughs> to release his wine in his life and his kingship, his maturity into you. Suffering begets maturity when God, who's good, is over it. When he's the, one engaged, he's the one breaking you, you will come out on the other side more mature. The, bread, the breaking of the bread releases the wine. Those who endure receive the maturity that comes through suffering. They go from the bread time to the wine time of life. Finally, the wine is poured out and the Christian dies as a libation to God. Your entire life, the course of history, 
can be found in the table. And the life of Christ, therefore, too, was also found in the table and embodied. Uh, it's, it's a type, it's a symbol of, of this. It reveals this to us. Thus, biography, or by, excuse me, micro, and history macro are present in the table. We look to Christ who comes as the crux of history, right in the center, and is the broken loaf that releases the new creation and the wine of fellowship with God. Let us have a view that the introductory stages of our lives, the priestly bread, break forth into wine and wisdom, kingly libation. Just like Paul speaks of his life being poured out as a drink offering before he dies, so we are poured out slowly as our wine ferments. If you know anything about fermentation, you will have samples and tastings out of the barrel as the wine goes to try to peg when it's mature, when it's fermented and matured enough to be able to pour. But we're basically therefore a tasting of God's vintage as we're slowly poured out. But we then enter the mature service of profit through that period until the final pouring out of our life unto the Lord. So as we approach the table today, let us look to the author and perfecter of our faith and experience him as the bread of life and the true vine to whom we are all adjoined as branches, bearing the vintage of life, suffering, and maturity in his likeness unto the end. May we be enjoined to him and to one another for the pleasure and glory of the vine dresser, God our Father. And if the, everybody would come to the table, the guys will serve the elements.